Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. The Lord bless you as you worship together with us. I hope it's been encouraging to you. It's been a tough week to watch on TV. Probably one of the most obvious signs of a cursed world, right? Sinfulness and the world groans underneath the curse that occurred when Adam and Eve sinned, and it still groans today. Gives us an opportunity, though, as believers, as we saw last week, that we can do good, and we can pray, and we can help, and make the Lord look good in the middle of difficult times and suffering. So let's make sure we, we do those things. We're back together in our study, First Timothy chapter 1. I'd like you to turn there, if you would, with me. Living the Gospel is our title of our section that bridges from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Look, if you would, verse 18, I'd like to read together, 18 through 20, if you would. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, this command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Verse 20, among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Last week, we spent our time in verse 18, a very important phrase there, fight the good fight. It's easy to skip over that and just say, okay, and forget perhaps what the intent is. So we looked at that, and then we move into verse 19, which we'll look at today after we review just for a minute, and we see keeping faith in a good conscience. Again, we have something very, very important there. It's important to look at, but what does it mean to keep faith, to keep a good conscience as part of living out the gospel? There's an illustration from Chuck Swindoll's book, The Grace Awakening. He recounts that uh, one of his favorite stories came from a, a man who used to attend there at church with him in years past. Pastor Swindoll remembers him telling a story of ministry from years before when he was a youth worker in an ethnic community. He was ministering at a church and it had Scandinavian roots, being rather forward-looking and a creative young man. He decided he would show the youth group a missionary film. We're talking simple, safe, black-and-white, missionary-oriented movie. The film projector hadn't been off for an hour before a group of the leaders in the church called to him and asked him to, what he had done, and they asked, did you show the young people a film? In all honesty, he responded, well, yes, I did. We, we don't like that, they replied. We don't want you to do that. Well, without trying to be argumentative, the youth worker just reasoned, well, I remember that at the last missionary conference, our church showed slides One of the leaders held up his hand to signal him to cease talking, and then in these words, he emphatically explained the conflict. If it's still, it's fine. If it moves, it's sin. You can show slides, but when they start moving, you're getting into sin. Is that it? That holding faith and a good conscience? Much the same approach in the first century and really contradistinction to the two commands of Christ Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees had developed a system of 613 laws, 365 negative commands, and 248 positive laws. By the time Christ came, it had produced a heartless, cold, arrogant brand of righteousness. And as such, it contained at least 10 tragic flaws. Number one, new laws continually needed to be invented for new situations. Two, accountability to God was replaced by what my actions look like to men. Number three, it reduces the importance of discernment. It creates a judgmental spirit. The Pharisees confused personal preferences with divine law. 
Number six, it produced inconsistencies. Number seven, it created a false standard of righteousness. Number eight, it became a burden to the Jews. Nine, it was strictly external. And ten, it was rejected by Christ. Last week we finished our study of verse 18, which we saw contains a very important command that Timothy fight the good fight. We saw numerous illustrations from passages which we saw applies not only to Timothy as a young pastor, but to every believer. And it's a command to struggle, we saw, and be engaged with a virtuous warfare, a good and excellent warfare that's to be well fought. It's a spiritual warfare, and we saw this last time of massive proportions. We saw a number of principles that were just obvious from this instruction, and I won't go back through all the background information that's important, but if you missed any of that, I would encourage you to go and catch up on those foundational issues. But we asked the question, how do we fight the fight? So it's obviously important. It's in the imperative. What does it mean? How do we know if we're doing it correctly? And in order to avoid the error of really minimizing that important command, we looked at a few of the elements of the battle. And the first one we saw was that in living out the gospel, which is part of fighting the good fight, we know that it's going to be a continuous battle. So throughout all of the physical life that the Lord gives you as a believer, you should fully expect then to be in a continuous spiritual struggle. And then we looked at 1 Timothy 6.14 and we saw a very important principle from a similarly worded passage. Uh, Number two, living out the gospel, this fighting the good fight, if it's anything, it's the duty of the believer you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. That's the language of duty. That's the language of responsibility. And we saw that's not a word that we hear much, either in our culture or in the church, that of duty. In Christianity, we talk about joy and peace and fulfillment. We talk about affirmation, satisfaction, and, and resting and freedom, but not duty. And yet, from Luke 17, 7 and following, we saw... Jesus explained this very important principle to his disciples and in no uncertain terms. When we've done what we're commanded to do, our duty, we are to say in Jesus' words from verse 10, so you too, when you do all things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. We just did our job. We did our duty. We did our responsibility. It just takes the whole focus away from selfishness and self-centeredness and that we are important in this whole situation, and that our satisfaction somehow is paramount. We also saw part of the struggle which we are to engage is in a world where Satan and the demons are in a struggle with God. And we looked at a lot of things that they're up to during this time in this temporary limited dominion over the earth. We won't go over all that again, but we also saw that you and I are really incidental in this whole struggle. Again, takes the focus off our own satisfaction and our own goodness and all that Uh, only as we're used for the kingdom, for God's glory, exalting Christ, are we pertinent in any minor way. And that led us to principle number three last week as we are talking about living out the gospel and fighting the good fight. Our struggle on our warfare reflect on the Lord. In other words, when we do it well, when when we follow and do the instructions the Lord gives us, that makes the Lord look good. And when we do it poorly, it makes the Lord look bad. And then Principle number four, it moved us right into that. In that whole thing, we need to realize that fighting the good fight, living out the gospel, there's going to be hardship. It's going to be hardship in that fight. And then after laying that groundwork, and we look at some of these markers that that fighting the good fight is going to look like, it's it's going to resemble these kinds of things. Then we looked at, again, at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 and 5. 
And we saw that it's much broader here as Paul talks in the same type of language about fighting and about warfare. He said, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Verse 5, we're destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we saw in that little passage that that in this fight, you can't use your own intellect. You can't use your own wisdom. It's not your natural talents. Again, the focus is off of you. We saw that the weapons we get to use are mighty enough to topple the kingdoms of Satan. The weapons of our warfare can cast down imaginations. The weapons of our warfare can destroy anything raised up against the knowledge of God. The weapons of our warfare can take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. And that was the fifth principle. And the answer to our question, how do we fight this fight? And that is, it's summed up in the word obedience. Fighting the good fight is doing what the Lord has said to do clearly, and we understand it, and then we do it. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? That last part, how does that apply to me, becomes the part that you act on. Fighting the good fight is to the extent that you act on, in obedience, the things that you understand the word to do. Don't expect the Lord to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, when you arrive in heaven, if you haven't been obedient to the things he's told you to do, okay? Faithful servants do what their master says. And so that gets misused a good bit, I think, during uh, times of reflection, it's at uh, times of uh, funerals. And so it's important. The obedience of Christ, that is summed up in what it looks like to fight the good fight. The Christian life is a struggle. It's a constant warfare where every believer has to do their duty. And that duty is whatever the Lord has given you to do in whatever circumstance you're in, whenever we see the battle going on, we're to bring the obedience of the Word of God. We address it with the power of the Word of God. We act in a way the Word has told us to act. We saw that's our only offensive weapon for Ephesians chapter 6 and the, and the uh, armor of the Lord is the sword of the Spirit. We do what the Word of God says. That's our duty every time. Obedience is our duty, and by that we fight the good fight. Now, I'd like you to look at verse 19, because if, if uh, we are living out the gospel, fighting the good fight, doing our duty of obedience, Paul tells Timothy, and then by extension then, as we've seen, everyone else, that his obedience must be in line with, this first part of 1 Timothy 1.19, keeping faith and a good conscience. And this is a very important point. And again, we'll pause here to, get, to come to grips with what's being said here. The integral part of the duty we must do must come from the heart. We're going to see this. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, The Liberty of Obedience, writes these words, quoting from a long time ago. She says, quote, I'm in earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ, but I'm puzzled about worldly things. What is it I must forsake? A young man asks. The answer, colored clothing, for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that it's not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard to shave is to lie against him who created us to attempt to improve on his work, end quote. Elizabeth Elliot comments on the above dialogue and she asks this question, does this sound absurd and what would we say? Yes. But it is the answer given in the most celebrated Christian schools of the second century. That's actually the answer you were supposed to give. Is that fighting the good fight? Is that carrying faith and a good conscience? And that was, of course, Swindoll's message earlier in moving pictures instead of slides. 
You're spiritual if it's a slide. You're not spiritual if it's a moving picture. That's certainly wrapped up in the Jewish Talmud that we just read, all of those extra laws to help you obey the actual laws. Because you want people to see you as spiritual. That was principle number six. It's been up there for a few minutes and living out the gospel. And what it means to fight the good fight, our duty of obedience, is a matter of the heart. It matters why you do what you do. So what does it mean that it's a matter of the heart? Let's explain that a little bit. We've looked at this before from a number of angles and different passages we've studied, but it bears repeating as often as Scripture repeats it. When Paul says keeping faith in a good conscience, that keeping is a Greek verb, echo, present active participle. It's to be understood in the imperative. Again, holding or wearing, like we saw before in verse 5, wearing a sincere faith. Here is holding faith. And the participle holding or wearing is not just playing the part. Because there's always this chance, as we've seen in numerous illustrations all the way up till now, that we're modeling pharisaical faith. I mean, it could start like this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Beware of, mark this, practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. See, that's always the, that's always the danger, isn't it? That we actually do things that we're doing because we want people to think we're spiritual, or we're doing what we're doing because we want to project a certain image or because somebody that's, that's what somebody else has done, see. That's not holding it or wearing it. In fact, Jesus says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So if you do your righteousness before men so that they'll think you're righteous, that in itself is the reward. They think you're righteous. But the Lord rejects all of that kind of duty. Doing it so that others will see That's not keeping faith. It's certainly not holding it or wearing it. And it can be as bad as, it starts with this, but it can be as bad as Matthew 23, verse 25, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That doesn't start out very well. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too mark this, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So is that holding faith and a good conscience? Because many thought these guys were the epitome of the most holy and the most righteous. When they looked at them, these are the guys who did their duty to the uttermost. That's Paul's own evaluation of his previous life. A Pharisee of Pharisees. No one was more righteous in keeping all of the Talmud than Paul. But the Lord rejected all of that. So it's not always what you want others to see, and it's not always what others do see that's holding faith in a good conscience. Keeping faith or holding or wearing, and let's just define that, and then we can really look at it more closely. Definition of keeping faith is wearing or holding your faith will make it clear what it looks like to be redeemed, not to play the part of the redeemed. Now let's break that down a little bit. Because hardly anyone will be able to tell if your faith is a matter of the heart. But you'll know. And that's where we start. So these are some self-checks. And we've looked at this before, and I think that you'll find it useful again and instructive. Because if you're going to bear supernatural fruit, that's going to mark your life. Because if you're born again, there's going to be some fruit that are going to be born. Okay, hardly anyone will be able to tell if your faith is a matter of the heart, but you'll know because you'll begin to bear fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. 
you're going to be able to see that fruit begin to appear. If you're holding on to faith in hypocrisy, if it's faith that so people can see that you're righteous, then these might not be visible, but you'll be able to tell. Are these things increasing in your life? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering? You have more patience with people than you did before you were redeemed, and do you have more patience now than you did when you were first redeemed? And then if you're keeping faith, you're going to see things in your life that you don't like. And so the life of one with sincere faith is going to be marked by repentance. Again, people may not know this, but you should know if you have an absence of daily repentant prayer time. Just think about your week. Did you spend time in prayer first, and was, that, was repentant prayer there? In other words, you saw a bunch of stuff that you didn't like in your life, and you began to evaluate that before the throne and not before other people. And you confess those things that you didn't do and you didn't like about what you did. Because when you do that, that suppresses a judgmental heart. So instead of comparing your self-righteousness against all the things that don't line up with your own preferences, you hear that a lot, well, I would never watch that movie. I would never listen to that song. See, that's the other way. That's doing your righteousness before men. Now, there's nothing wrong with some accountability. There's nothing wrong with saying, here's what I think about this and this is why I believe it. It's the heart, though, that really is being revealed there. Instead of just examining your own unrighteousness, you're quick to examine other people's. And if you truly keep faith in doing your duty, then you're really going to love righteousness for righteousness' sake. And again, that's an introspective look at what you're doing. Do you love righteousness for righteousness' sake because you love the Lord? See, when we raise kids, initially we teach them to obey us by corporal punishment and by rewarding good behavior. So if they don't do what they're supposed to do, we spank them. And they are worried about that, right? They should be, if you're doing it correctly. If you're doing it in love, they should be concerned that if they disobey you, they're going to get a spanking and they should get one. But as they grow, what happens? You want them to begin to respond to you in love, right? In fact, that's precisely how the Lord, what he expects of us. If we think about our own life, the Lord has every right to deal with our sin however he wants to. Would we agree with that? He has every right to deal with your sin however he wants to deal with it. And, of course, he dealt with the ultimate results of your sin on, with Christ on the cross. But as a child of his, he has the right to chasten you if he wishes to. And if you're honest, at a very foundational level, we should be concerned about that. If you really understand the Lord, how the Lord wants to deal with you, that should concern you. But that's a very foundational relationship with the Lord, isn't it? Because perfect love casts out fear. We get to the point where we respond to, to the Lord in love, don't we? That's what we want our kids to do. We want to, we want to corporally punish them and encourage them to respond to us eventually out of love. So we ask them to do something. They know we have their best interest at heart, and they respond that way, and we do the same with the Lord. We understand initially He can deal with our sin however He wants, and then we move into a place where we respond in obedience. And so we're doing righteousness for righteousness' sake because we love the Lord and we respond that way. So again, you can look at yourself. Why do you do what you do? Do you do it because it's pleasing to the Lord and you love Him? Not because you want other people to think you're righteous, okay? What other people think about you necessarily is not at the top of the list, although it's important to keep a good testimony among men. But this is a very tricky subject here. And we can teach our kids to be good on the outside, but not teach them why we should do what we should do. And so you're going to do what's right, you're going to do it for Christ's sake, and that's going to be a way you can determine whether you're carrying faith. And we looked at this before, but if you're really wearing faith, keeping faith, then you'll willfully, joyfully submit to counting the cost. 
Again, you know, you'll give all you have if need be, the opposite of what false teachers do, the opposite of what false believers do. False teachers want it all. False believers want all the goodness from God and none of the hardship. See. And listen, again, as you're raising children, and we looked at last week, it's easy to duplicate yourself and your child, but not duplicate godliness. You can teach your kid to be a good, a good man. You can teach them to work hard. And you might duplicate that, and you might duplicate ungodliness in him. See, because listen, if, if, if you're not willing to count the cost, your kid's going to find out. They're going to be the first ones to know at home that it's not worth it to you enough to really count the cost at home and reign in your life and do the things that are pleasing to the Lord in front of no one except your family. You're willing to count the cost. What it, hold faith makes whatever sacrifice is necessary because nothing is as valuable as being a disciple of Jesus. Did you know what? Your kids will be the first one to know whether that's true or not. But in the church, it's hard to know that. See, But you can evaluate yourself. You're willing to follow him and do whatever he asks. That's the longing of your heart. Do you know that's, that's trademark of being a believer? You understand that, I think. We're not talking about some other level of of Christianity that's willing to count the cost. That is the way you come to faith. You, you lose your life to find it. Give up your life to save it. So counting the cost is important. Keeping faith, you want to know if you are, then that should be true in your life. Another thing, keeping faith is a, a faith that's going to be marked by love. Love of the Word, love of the church, love for God's people, love for God, right? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some are, Hebrews says, but all the more as you see the day approaching. You're coming to church because you love the Lord and you love His people and you love the fellowship of His people. Think about that, beloved. Do you come because you love the fellowship of His people or do you come because your spouse expects you to? Students, are you coming because you really love the fellowship of the Lord and you love the church and you love God and you want to be obedient to Him or are you coming because your parents make you? Listen, my boys and I had this conversation when they were all young. Someday you're going to move away from home. No, Dad, we will never move. That's what they say when they're little. Right? They probably said that to you too. They will, okay? Um, and they'll want to, and that's a good thing. Because that means you did your job, because they're ready. But listen, you know, when, when it comes right down to it, I would say to them when they were little, when you're on your own, will you go to church? Yes, because they expect, of course, they, they know I expect them to say that. And then I say, why? Because now they're thinking, oh, come on my own. I mean, I can do what I want, right? I will, Dad, because I love the Lord and I love the church. And His Word says for me to go and be part of the fellowship and plug in. These, these are the answers that are music to a dad's heart. This is what you want your students to say to you. See, and then you pray for them constantly that they'll follow through with those commitments that they had as a young age. Love of the Word, love of the church, love for God's people, love for God. People may not know. See, these are all internal types of things. They're hard to measure and observe. But Timothy would know and you know whether they're true or not. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Will you do that? And there's only two places I'm going to have you turn today, and I know sometimes it's distracting, um, and I try to put things up there so we can flow, but sometimes it's important to turn and just kind of look and see what it looks like and make some notes. This is one of those places, so be encouraged if I ask you to turn there. It's, it's important. Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus is teaching his disciples on the Beatitudes, and I think you just begin to see again internal things that mark the life of one keeping faith, true faith. Verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you're not bringing anything to the table. You don't think God's so, uh, God's so blessed to have you in the kingdom. Poor in spirit. You recognize your own depravity. You, you recognize your own uh, 
inability to accomplish anything, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's just Nat, it's a natural occurrence in those who are truly born again. Best are those who mourn. They mourn over their own sin. And we talked about that before. They have, they have an understanding heart, a repentant heart. You come to Christ in repentance, you continue your relationship with Him in repentance. And so they mourn, and they mourn over injustice, and they mourn over the sorrows of others, and they mourn over the sin of the nation. You know, when you see things that are going on in our country, it's easy to rail politically. And we, we get that. We, we uh, constitutional republic allows us to make a difference in who rules over us. And so sometimes we own that in a very real respect because we weren't careful about what priorities the Lord gave us about those who we should elect. But in an, in an ultimate sense, it really is the sin of our nation that c- should grieve us, right? When we see that, is your first response grief or your first response a lashing out and a complaining, oh, well, he's an idiot. See, and that's an important marker about where you really are. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Are you gentle? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's righteousness for righteousness' sake. Okay, not so they can look righteous in front of other people. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Do you give mercy? See, again, not everybody can always tell. Right? Maybe people in your workplace know. When you burn that bridge of mercy, you burn the bridge you have to cross over. So, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. See, it's hard to know whether you're pure in heart, right? You may be entertaining a bunch of thoughts that aren't pure, but nobody knows. But this is a marker, isn't it? To know if you're really carrying faith. And we could go on, and you can see this. Now look again at the first part of 1 Timothy 1.19. He says, keeping faith and a good conscience. So we looked at keeping faith. We understand what that looks like. A lot of times that's not visible to everybody else, but it can be visible to you if you answer some simple questions. But when you look at a good conscience, the verb keeping goes along with that second requirement to do this duty from the heart, and that keeping a good conscience. Holding or wearing, in, in other words, the same way that we did faith, a good conscience. And that's um, number two. This is our second definition. Keeping a good conscience, it's the ability to evaluate a situation and choose the correct course of action because your conscience has been informed by sound doctrine. It's a very important part of who you are as a believer. The conscience is your God-given self-judging faculty. It's the conversation you have with yourself when there's some question about what you should do. It's your inner awareness of the quality of your own actions. As Paul wrote the church in Rome, he described it this way, speaking of the unredeemed, he said, even the unredeemed show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Even the unredeemed have a conversation about what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Now, sometimes they choose wrong because the conscience has been informed incorrectly. We're going to look at that in just a second. The conscience is the law of God written in the heart of everyone who has ever lived. But in order for it to work properly, it has to be properly informed. And Paul wants Timothy to hold a good conscience. He doesn't want Timothy's actions to betray his conscience and what his conscience is telling him. And then the other side, uh, for his conscience to tell him he's okay when he's not okay. See, both of those things are difficulties. There are ways that you can trip up. On the one hand, your conscience tells you to do something you don't listen to it. On the other hand, your conscience is telling you incorrectly that you're okay and you're not okay. And I think this is what Paul's talking about as he defends himself before Felix. Uh, Turn again to Acts 24, if you would. Acts 24, verse 14. It's the last time I'll have you turn anywhere. Just hold your finger here in 1 Timothy. Turn to Acts. 
And Paul is, is talking about, giving his testimony, talking about as he defends himself before the governor. And he says to, uh, he says to, uh, he says to Felix, this I admit to you, verse 14, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets. Having a hope, verse 15, in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So his conscience is rightly informed. He understands from the law and the prophets what was supposed to occur with Jesus. He understands there's a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So his conscience is informing him correctly. And then he says in verse 16, in, this, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. So in other words, I say what comes out of my understanding of the Word of God in faith, and then my conscience bears witness that it is correct because it's properly informed, you see? And it works in a very dynamic way. So in order for Timothy to do his duty, in order for you and I to do our duty in a very real sense, in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, then you can't betray your conscience, you see? The conscience was really an immense issue for Paul. Three times in the pastoral epistles, we will see it. We've seen it already once in 1 Timothy 5, 1, 5. He told Timothy that the purpose for commanding the elders to stop teaching false doctrine was to bring them back to three things. Do you remember? You must hold the love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Those are the things he said you had to return to. And you couldn't teach false doctrine and get that as an outcome. So he says you have to turn back around and be pure in your teaching. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, he taught the church leaders that they must Keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they have to know what they are and then act on them accordingly. So you know what the deep truths of the faith are? Teaching them faithfully, acting on them. That's doing it in a good conscience. In 2 Timothy 1.3, he sustained his own ministry and substantiated it by saying, I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience. Listen, before you, I've done what I'm supposed to do, and my conscience is also bearing witness that I've done what I'm supposed to do. And the rest of the New Testament really testifies to Paul's empowerment through a good conscience. He courageously took his stand before the Sanhedrin. He looked straight in the eye and he declared to them, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Oh, that we could say that, see? That's precisely what the command here in 1 Timothy 1 is telling us we need to be able to say. That in all good conscience you fulfilled your duty. You understand? And what's your duty? To do those things that the Lord has commanded us to do in the imperative without fail all the time. And we saw it, and we saw it declared when he stood before Governor Felix just a minute ago to the Romans. Paul voiced his amazing affirmation of love for his people as true because he was spoken with a clear conscience. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience affirms it in the Holy Spirit. I love you and my conscience affirms it. I'm doing it before Christ as you, as it were, as a witness. It's true. So we can see that for Paul, good conscience is at the very root of fighting the good fight. Now mark this, beloved. An unviolated conscience means that you're keeping a tight ship. Violating the conscience may not be visible to others, but it's yielding up to the adversary a beachhead. It's a beachhead. And that's the same word that we see used for warfare. In fact, Ephesians 4.27, do not give the enemy a foothold. He tells all these things that shouldn't be part of your life because if they are part, you're violating your conscience, you're violating the Word of God, not holding a sincere faith, and you've given the enemy a beachhead in your life. They ha it's an opportunity for the enemy to act on this disobedience of yours. So catch this. 
Let's put it together, kind of sum it up. In order for those who fight the good fight of faith to struggle and be effective, to be pleasing to the Lord in the duty of obedience, number one, there can't be legalism. So you can't be doing it just because other people expect you to or because you want people to think you're righteous. You have to be doing it for righteousness' sake. And number two, there can't be hypocrisy. In other words, you can't be violating your conscience. And we're going to see the reason for that in just a second. It's very powerful. Holding faith and a good conscience go together in a healthy Christianity market. They are inseparable companions, each one informing the other constantly. You're in the Word. It's informing your conscience. You get into a position where you have to make a decision. Your conscience now is informing you. Do you see? Back and forth. Both held as you're supposed to hold them. So the believer needs to know from the Word what to do, which informs his conscience correctly, and then why he does it, which allows the conscience to inform him constantly on the validity of both those things. So you can see now, they're concurrent, volitional responses and responsibilities to saving grace, and integral, and integral to fighting the good fight of faith. It's just so, so important. As we understood the good fight of faith, which is acting in obedience, we have to understand that in order to do that, holding faith in a good conscience are integral to that happening. It's like the inner workings of fighting the good fight. Now look at the last part of verse 19. He says this. He says, um, keeping faith in a good conscience. Now look at the last part. Which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, what we get to see here is what happens when you don't do the two other things. Okay? You're not holding conscience and you're not holding faith. You get shipwreck. So we get to see it done incorrectly. This is the illustration. They failed at the good fight of obedience, which means one or both of the responsibilities of holding faith or holding a good conscience were not done. And we already know that this was the case because these guys were just two examples of what we've already studied as we started in verse 3 and went all the way through verse 12, right? We know there were teachers that Timothy still had to deal with that were manipulating the Word of God. They were misusing the Old Testament law. They'd messed up the delivery of the gospel. We've looked at all of that. They'd adopted false doctrines, so the conscience had not been informed correctly, and they had actually, we saw, physically, mentally rejected true teaching. They turned away from it. So the lifestyle and the teaching were not in line, and the conscience was not able to inform them of the falsehood. And that's bad. And it's bad not only for them, it's bad for those who listened, right? Because if you're not being informed correctly from those who teach and say they're teaching the Word of God, then you're not going to be informed correctly. Your conscience, you're not going to know what the Word of God says. You're going to have a hard time acting on what you should do. So lifestyle teaching, not in line. Conscience, not able to inform of the falsehood. And that's bad. And that can't remain the situation. Why? Because Paul says something even worse is going to happen. They have, here it is, look there, suffered shipwreck. They've rejected what he just said, fighting the good fight by holding faith and conscience, and they suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. Now, that's a compound verb. In Ogeson, naus is a ship and agnumi is to break. And so it's illustrative, really, of the spiritual condition. Aorist tense is a time in the past. It's a snapshot of a past time. We've looked at that before, right? The, the, uh, the works of salvation spring out in aorist tense, right? Because it happened at the transformation. This also happened at a past time. That's very important to keep in mind. Active voice is the current state of affairs and in indicative mood. That's, that's reality. And I just want to point out by highlighting this verb, we don't highlight all of them, but when they're this important, I want to take some time with this. The reality of the situation had already occurred. That's what that means. 
So, Paul dealt with it when he came along. Understand? But the shipwreck had already occurred because it's Arist. When did the shipwreck occur? As soon as they stopped keeping faith or good conscience. Do you see that? And I tell men this all the time. That, you know, when you, when you get to the point where you actually fail morally, that wasn't when you actually shipwrecked your faith. You know this? Back up. Back up. Pat, back before the action, back up in your life, back up to where you're not keeping faith in a good conscience, back up to where you're not in the Word anymore, or you're kind of interpreting it like you'd like to, and you get people who will tickle your ears, and you're not being confronted, and nobody's coming alongside you and helping you bear your burdens and keeping you straight, or you're violating your conscience, so you say one thing, and you read the Word of God, but your mind is in a completely different place. Do you see? That's where you shipwrecked. That's the idea. The guys at this church, they'd already shipwrecked. Paul just came along and he had to deal with the shipwreck, but it already happened. Now you go forward, you get to the point where you actually act on that shipwreck. You see? That's how that works. Keep that in mind, beloved, when you are thinking these kinds of things, you're, we're going through this. This is super important. Keeping faith in a good conscience. Imperative to you walking in, in, in the Lord and doing what he asked you to do in your duty. They departed sound doctrine. The conscience was not informing them correctly. They got into trouble. So they suffered shipwreck. And then it says, in regard to their faith. And just as a footnote, some translations have their faith. You might have that. Some have the. Strictly speaking, the Article 10, along with piston faith, is understood as objective. So I think, in general, you could say the faith and be correct. And if we understand it that way, then the sad reality is that, that Paul is carried along to express that although the great historical theological facts of the gospel are all settled and they're all unchangeable, and the structure and the approach to interpreting those facts and teaching those facts are all laid out clearly, both are true. The understanding of the facts and the fact that they're clear and the way you're supposed to present them, which we've gone over numerous times, how you're supposed to go about interpreting what the Bible says, both of those are clear. Even even though both of those are clear, it's possible then for men and women to wreck the message of the truth. See, there's an objective standard that's already laid out in the way you're supposed to do it, but it's possible to wreck the message of the truth, and they do that by doing some of the things we've seen here in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul has to say, don't teach strange doctrines. You don't get to interpret the Bible however you want to interpret it. You get to pick and choose things you want to say, and you exclude other things, and somehow that's going to be okay. It won't, and the law is good if one uses it correctly, because what were they doing? Picking and choosing out of the law. This is make you spiritual. This diet will make you spiritual. Don't marry, you'll be spiritual. All those kinds of things, all false, see? So Paul had to say, listen, you've already shipped what have you done? You have interpreted those facts incorrectly. You've, you're, you're bringing these things in, and you're teaching things that are laid out clearly incorrectly, and you're doing it in an inappropriate manner. And we've seen that in other parts of our study. So it's not isolated just here. Remember back in Romans 16, if you were with us in that verse-by-verse study, Paul says to the Romans, he goes, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. In other words, there's a certain Doctrine laid out in the scripture, you're supposed to teach it. People who oppose that, keep your eye on them, right? They cause hindrances contrary to the teaching that you've learned and turn away from them. 
For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of, his own, of their own appetite. What's that mean? They pick and choose from the Word of God what makes them feel good. They teach that to the church. Whatever it is that's good for Christianity for them and what makes you feel good, they teach you to do the same thing. Pick and choose from the Word of God what you're going to obey and what you don't. That's why when we have to deal with people who are in open sinfulness, they'll interpret it however they want. Well, I don't, I don't love her anymore. And, and I think the Lord wants me to be happy. And, you know, this is not a big deal. People do this all the time. We can still be friends. And, you know, I don't think the Lord thinks of me this way. And I don't answer to you. And all, all that kind of, see, all those are wrong, right? All those are wrong. But they became wrong here. When we became to ju start justifying our thoughts and what we were thinking about ourselves and what we were owed and all that kind of stuff. And we forgot what we were supposed to be doing, you see? And that's what we, that's what we get into here. We get this understanding that's skewed. And so, he says, leave off that. Leave off these men. They're not, they're not slaves of Christ. They're slaves of their own appetite. They're only picking and choosing what they want to know and what they want to say and what they want to believe. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So they carry people right along with them. Well, that sounds super good, and I like that. Or how about 2 Corinthians 2.17? We're not like many peddling the Word of God, like a used car salesman making it sound good, fixing it around so it produces what you want to produce, or adulterating the Word of God, 2 Corinthians 4.2, you know, actually changing it, making it say something else, or 2 Corinthians 11.4, another Jesus whom we've not preached, a different spirit which you've not received, a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. See, all these are men and women who've suffered shipwreck already, and it's manifested in what's going on here, you see? Or Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel, but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So see, it's always in the church. These things have been done by various teachers throughout every century. It's happening still now. And, and in doing so, they have and still do make a mess of sound teaching and they make a shipwreck of the faith, you see? Now, if we understand it's suffering shipwreck in regard to their faith, which you may have that in your, in your text, that's okay. It's still, you're still going to get the same way. And we can do that because shipwreck is third person plural. So we can say their faith. And that just means it's possible for false teachers and certainly for every believer to abandon the true understanding of the Scriptures. And in its place, this happens all the time, in its place they put their own desires, their own understanding, which is false, or their own preferences, or their own feelings. They put these things in the place of the authority of a correct interpretation and a correct application. See. Or, it could be intentional this way, I don't like that, so I'm going to believe this. Or it can be just be biblical in, uh, ignorance, but I think feeds, they feed both sides. Because that's widespread in the church. And certainly that can come from false teachers who shipwreck faith and, and propagate a shipwreck among those who sit under their teaching. So they don't know the Word of God either. The preacher's not using it, and so the people who are listening aren't, aren't understanding it. But just in general, and you know, again, this is just kind of introspective. Many Christians can't name the Ten Commandments. Many can't even name five commandments of the Ten Commandments. Most don't even know where you could even find the Ten Commandments. And beloved, if we're going to love God as we ought, we have to know the doctrine of God, Right? And even if you didn't know it up till now, would it make you love him less if you learn more? Well, the answer will be yes if you've shipwrecked the faith 
Because again, when you come to someone who's in sin and you approach them with the gospel, then they'll just reject, well, I don't believe that, right? Well, it's because they don't even know what it says, right? It, you don't know where they're found. You don't know what it says. You don't know how to apply it. But if you really love God and then you're found in error and people say, well, this is really what you're supposed to do. You love him even more, right? Because you know more about him. And we ought to know the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, of salvation, of the church, you know, of end times. And that knowledge comes from Scripture in its history and in its narratives and its poetry, its parables, its instructive passages, its apocalyptic sections. You know, all of that stuff helps to inform your mind about the correct way to view God, and that informs your conscience so it can come back and tell you, okay, don't depart, don't do this, do this. So it has to be read. Because what a believer knows and believes about God is everything market because what you know and believe will determine how you live. See, What you know and believe or think you know and believe about God is going to determine how you live. Doctrine always determines conduct. Always. Justify whatever you want to do if you don't understand the doctrine that goes behind it. Right doctrine makes it possible to fight the good fight. And not knowing or choosing to ignore it Picking and choosing things that you like and don't like. Going about it from a very infantile, impatient consumerism. Just gives way to putting all things in the place of the authority of a correct interpretation and application. See, The same end result happens. They shipwreck their faith. See, but it's, it's ultimately the same thing going on. Same cause, same effect. Now, before we move on to verse 20, this is principle 7, if you will, of, of the gospel, how not to do it, deliberately changing the truth, not knowing the truth, or exchanging it for feelings or preferences are all referred to as shipwreck. When that begins to go on, you've already shipwrecked. Now it's just a matter of when will someone discover it. You see? It's already occurred. It's just a matter of time before it's exposed. And so, teacher and believer, beware of that. Very important. Now, as we look at verse 20, and it's going to be pretty stark, I want to give you a footnote about shipwreck. Shipwreck does not necessarily imply being lost. Okay? Shipwreck doesn't necessarily mean death. Paul was actually shipwrecked four times, and he didn't die any of those times. But that doesn't mean it isn't serious, and that doesn't mean that there won't be painful consequences for shipwreck or embarrassment or shame, and there most likely will be. So we're going to end this first chapter with a couple of notable shipwrecks. For look at verse 20. Among these, so these are the ones who have turned away from sound teaching. These are the ones that are not holding faith and a good conscience. These ones are not fighting the good fight. And it's already happened in the past. Now Paul had to discover it when he came. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So, these two guys are notable shipwrecks. And that's hard to read, isn't it? And while some of the elders at Ephesus undoubtedly fought well, others had failed miserably. Paul noted them by name, and there may still be some in the wings that were not fighting well and had already shipwrecked, and that's why Timothy's left there, to make sure they root out all of that stuff in the leadership of the church. 
Paul notes them by name, and that's tough, isn't it? Because I'm relatively sure these guys didn't come up through the ministry with the goal to shipwreck their faith. I don't think anyone starts in ministry and says, at the end, I'm going to shipwreck. But I think we understand that process now, don't we? Once you begin to violate your conscience, or you're not studying so you understand what it actually says to inform the conscience, you can get in trouble pretty fast. So I don't think guys intentionally came up and said, I want to shipwreck the faith, I want to embarrass myself, I want to be put out of the church. And, and they very well may be in heaven, along with Yodi and Syntyche. Remember them? Philippians 4.2, in, in the letter to the church of Philippi, Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. That's embarrassing. So for all forever, enshrined in the Word of God, two people who were actually in a church in Philippi, two ladies who couldn't get along and argued, Paul writes in his letter, tell them to get along. Glad he doesn't do that all the time, right? Some of our names would be in enshrined forever, but I think we can understand too that um, we can't really point fingers because someday we'll be in heaven and all of our failings will be known because we'll pass through the Bema Seat Judgment. And some of that will all be burned up, right? And all we'll be left with, some of us, is a robe of righteousness because everything we built was just wood, hay, and stubble. So we can't really point fingers at Yodi and Satiki. We can't really point fingers at Hymenaeus and Alexander because perhaps we've been them. But it's tough nonetheless to have your name recorded for purposes of an example of what not to do in the church. And then you end up in heaven with all the other redeemed. That's what we have. And they literally shipwrecked their faith or the faith and their doctrine was on the rocks, and, and we know Hymenaeus went overboard in his eschatology because 2 Timothy 2.17, which we'll get to, mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus, another guy who wandered away from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place and destroyed the faith of some. So he probably spiritualized the doctrine of the, of the resurrection and related it to conversion and then denied any bodily resurrection, and that's still, that's still available for you today in the church. So maybe Alexander was part of that too, we don't know. But regardless, the point is that they didn't fight the good fight, and it all began because they didn't hold faith and a good conscience, one or the other or both, in obedience to proper doctrine, and then these guys taught it to others, but the same thing can occur any believer in any believer's life for the same reasons. So with the language, I think it's easy as we look at that to think that Paul wrote these men off, but that's not what he did, right? He says he handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. And we've talked about this before, and we go over it in the Be the Church class because it's an important doctrine in the church. It has to do with accountability for one another. And we talk about this too, the one another is the scripture. If you've been through the Be the Church class, you know the one another in scripture, the one another's in scripture are your job and my job to do. Part of that is accountability um, and uh, reproof and correction and instruction and all the things that go along with being accountable to one another in the faith. It's part of the body, the active body. I know the church today wants to be independent. They don't want anybody to tell them what to do and all that. But listen, that's not what the church is about. The church is about helping each other and encouraging one another and holding one another accountable. And that's what's going on here. And so he hands them over to Satan and Satan is doing the Lord's bidding. Again, a spirit with a line drawn around him. He can only do what the Lord asks him to do. And in this particular case, uh, these two guys are removed from the church and put into the realm of Satan where he can buffet them. And so I think it would be accurate to say very much like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, he said, I've decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What's going on there? Well, just open sinfulness in the church. The church should have dealt with it and put the person out. Paul says, I'm not there, but even not being there, I'm telling you what to do, and I with you put this person out so that they'll learn how not to sin. And so I think that um, 
it's accurate to say in all these cases that Paul fervently hoped all these men would be restored. That's the whole idea. It's remediation that we're looking for, isn't it? Because handing over to Satan is that communication. Paul put Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church, away from then God's care and protection, thus under the power of Satan. So you may not understand this, and, and because the church is minimized in today's culture, uh, that there's a certain protection that comes to those who are part of the body of Christ. Did you know that? That even, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is an interesting passage, even for a spouse married to a non-believing spouse, did you realize there's some protection that comes along and blessing that by residual, we just call that splash blessing, on those who are part of the family where one spouse is redeemed and one isn't? So it shouldn't surprise us that inside the church, there's this, there's this protection that is happening because the Lord's at work here, and that in taking the person and putting him out of the fellowship of the church, you put him into the realm of Satan where they no longer have that protection. See, so it's the church's job to do that. Paul shows this by example. It's the same language that we have in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. So the process here is remediation. The process here is restoration. And so here it must be Paul's intention that they be buffeted by Satan. And their separation from God is really illustrated by their forced separation from God's people. And as we close today on these thoughts, though it might appear otherwise, Paul's attitude was really one of grace. Uh, of, of uh, severe grace. He explained this a different way in the circumstances to the Thessalonians, which we'll study in the future. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, listen to what he says here. It's like the opposite of what we normally do. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter. So there's a number of, of uh, instructive passages that say what you are to do and what you aren't to do. It's not open for, well, I don't believe that. It's not my opinion, whatever. If you don't obey what Paul said to the letter, it has a lot of things there, which we'll look at Take special note of that person, do not associate with them, so that he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. What's supposed to happen? So if someone deliberately, over the long term, disobeys what the Word of God says, are we supposed to be continually having fellowship with them? No, it's the opposite, right? That's hard to hear, isn't it? But see, God's concerned about the church, isn't he? He's concerned about the purity of the church. He's concerned about the individual, so much so that he wants to make sure that there's enough buffeting that they'll turn back to holy living. It's hard for us to process that in, in the current environment of the church, and most churches have no intention of doing any of these kinds of things. But this is the proper working of the church. And the church that takes its work seriously will do this when the occasion is required. And so the message is really clear. We, like Timothy, are called to fight the good fight, which we saw is obedience to Christ. And the method of doing that, hanging on to faith, hanging on to a good conscience, so, no legalism, respond to the word out of true love for God, and no hypocrisy, don't compromise, your test, don't compromise your conscience when it's telling you to stop doing something, it's going to inform your heart, keep it on the narrow way, because duty of obedience is a matter of the heart, and that's what Paul wants to make sure we understand. So, let's, uh, let's go to prayer, if you would, and we kind of assimilate what we talked about as we closed out that chapter. Lord, I thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for how it impacts the lives and hearts of those who truly know you. We don't pretend that this will have any power over those who have rejected a clear teaching of the word, who live in open sinfulness on a regular basis. This will just seem like a bunch of nonsense, unfair, capricious, vindictive. Except this is what you say to us. Give us discernment, Father to understand what it is that you expect, what our duty actually looks like, and then how that duty is accomplished by holding faith and holding a good conscience. 
give us understanding of uh, perhaps where we may be violating our conscience, uh, give us an understanding of where we may not know what it is we're supposed to believe. We may not even know where the Ten Commandments can be found or even five of them. Just an indication that we're in a very precarious place. And if we're already violating our conscience, if we're already excusing passages of the Scripture and justifying our actions, we've already shipwrecked. And now it's just a matter of being found out. And then that discovery, of course, may lead to whether or not it's indicative that the individual is even born again to begin with. But if they are, it's for mediation for restoration. So Father, thank you today for how clear the passage is, how hard it is to understand and to teach, but to get to the bottom of it, help us to have a settled understanding of what the church is supposed to look like, but more importantly, what we're supposed to look like when nobody sees. Why do we do what we do? Do we have repentant faith that occurs on a regular basis throughout the week? Do we understand what, how we're supposed to look at sinfulness in our own life? Do we respond in, in obedience because we want people to think we're spiritual? Or do we respond in obedience because we love you? How about we be clear in our lives? It's our desire. And for all these things and for your richness of your word and for the fellowship of the saints and for the ministry that's going on downstairs and in the back and in TV room, we thank you for, for that. For all those people who give up their time and commit themselves to, to serve you in some place, to see the gospel go out. We're so grateful for that. Thank you that you're at work here. So we give you praise and glory and, and all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.